Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. And so the church was built on the foundation of Christianity being an intimate relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. It was Aristotle who said that every good story has a beginning, a middle and an end. The story of you isn't finished yet. When we look back at the journey of the church, we see that it, its story is also unfinished as it's still being lived out. Does your story and that of the church intersect? Or perhaps more accurately, how does your story and that of the church intersect? Let's look further, shall we, by joining with Dr. Corbett now. This week, the story God is still writing. We're continuing to look at the Reimagining Church series. And today, I want to tell you about a story that God is still writing. And it is the story of the church. And the interesting, perhaps good news, <laughs> I hope, for you, is that this is a story that you and I are a part of. And even before... God began writing this story. He had you and I in mind. It was the philosopher Aristotle who said, every good story has three essential elements. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And with this story, which I'm going to say is probably the greatest story, the end has not yet been written except the script has been revealed. So if you can follow my gist here, we're going to have a look at God's plan, which is his redemption story that you and I are a part of. And central to that is the church. Let's pray. Father, as we gather here today as your local community of believers, the church, a local church, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand that this is not a plan B this is not some side issue. This is not some tangent. This is a part, the central part of your plan of redemption. And Father, in an age when people perhaps are dismissing the relevance of being a part of church, especially with what the world has just gone through with COVID, I pray now, Lord, that you would open eyes, open ears, help us to see what your word has always been saying and help us to hear the voice of your spirit that we might be the kind of people that you want us to be. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, describes the church as the central part of God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And with that, the Apostle Paul launches in his epistle to describe to the Ephesians and the surrounding churches who would share this epistle that God's plan involves the church, the mingling of Jew and Gentile, Greek and Romans together, male and female, into an organization, a group of people called the church. This is God's story. His story involves you, it involves I, and it involves others who are yet to join his church. It is a part of the central plan of redemption, that is the, the story of redemption that focuses on his eternal son 
who is to be born into the world at just the right time, as it says in Galatians 4.4, where it says, At just the right time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, who would come as a human being. The seeds of this story were sown into the very Garden of Eden, so to speak. In Genesis chapter 3.15, God tells the woman that it would be your seed, that, and we know that to be Christ, who would be born, who would one day crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would bruise his heel, which is a comparison between what would happen to Christ and what Christ would do to him. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 7.14 that unto us a son is given, a child is born, but a son is given. The son is given, in other words, he was the eternal son of God. The prophet Isaiah goes on to say that on his shoulders the entire government shall rest. He shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and might and so on. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, the, the writer there tells us that the prophets longed to look into this plan, that there would be a saviour who would come, who would come as our, not just our saviour, but as our sacrifice. And amazingly, the prophet Isaiah says he would be the Lamb of God. And of course, this is what John the Baptist proclaimed about Christ. And then the story goes on that he, that is Jesus, and his father would then send the Holy Spirit into the world to establish and oversee the church, this pillar of God's plan of redemption, and that they would one day become the bride of Christ, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, and is alluded to in Revelation chapter 19 verse 7, where it says, Behold, his bride has made herself ready, that is, the people of God. So this seed, this seed of the story was planted, and I use the word seed because it's a garden, and after all, there were many seeds planted by the Lord to plant the Garden of Eden, as it says. And so this seed was one of those that was sown right into the very fabric of what God was doing when he established the Garden of Eden. And so we see that that seed then germinated on the day of Pentecost, described in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, when it talks about the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven with tongues of fire, flames of fire. And then it says that all the believers gathered together they gave heed to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, as they passed on what Christ had given them to teach, and that they met together regularly in fellowship to pray and obviously to reach out because it says on the day the church was birthed, 3,000 people came to know Christ. 3,000 people turned away from their sin. 3,000 people were baptized into Christ and into the church. This was the foundation of the church, and that church grew rapidly. Of course, wherever there's growth, as you would know if your parents, whenever your children grow, there's always problems, and the same happened with the church. As the church grew, there were what we might call growing pains. We see that there were several conflicts. There was a pretty dramatic conflict in Acts chapter 5. It describes a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and the text suggests that they were a part of 
the group of believers, but they were not really and truly themselves believers. It seems that this flushed out a problem that just as people were selling land and selling their possessions to fund the ministry of the church, which then, as we will see, went to feed the poor and help and shelter those who perhaps needed that, that Ananias and Sapphira came and lied to the Apostle Peter, saying, uh, we're giving this to the church. And Peter, prompted by the Holy Spirit, that something was not quite right here, said, is this, is this the entire proceedings? He said to Ananias, and Ananias said, absolutely, this is it, this is all. <laughs> and Peter does a remarkable thing because the church was not something to be trifled with. And Peter says to him, you have not lied to me, but you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And that tells us immediately that the Holy Spirit, who was sent by God the Father and God the Son to oversee, establish and, and, and make sure that this church was, was uh, well established, that we, we have Peter saying you've lied to a person. It's not just a thing. It's a person. You have lied to a person. And so the church was built on the foundation of Christianity being an intimate relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. And so with that, we have this revelation that the Holy Spirit took the church very, very seriously. And when Ananias had lied to Peter, he had essentially grieved the Holy Spirit, lied to the Holy Spirit, and was found to be someone who had attempted more or less to swindle a reputation for himself, and he died. And so there was a problem, and the Holy Spirit dealt with that problem rather dramatically. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 5. But the problems didn't go away. As the church grew, we see in Acts chapter 6 that there was complaints coming in left, right and centre from those widows who felt that they had been neglected in the offerings and, and in the distribution of food aid and so on. So with each problem, there came a solution. And every time the church solved a problem, it grew further. And in this instance, this, the problem was solved by the apostles appointing seven Men full of the Holy Spirit who knew Christ, they knew the teaching of Christ, and they were appointed as deacons, diaconos, servants, to be able to distribute the aid to the widows who were feeling that they were neglected. And with that, the church grew, and we see this problem then causing jealousy among the religious leaders. As the Christian church grew, the established Religion over Israel, which of course was Judaism, felt threatened. And with that threat came hostility. And we are told in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen, one of the seven deacons, was martyred because he was accused of doing something that he actually hadn't done. That was to denounce the, the Moses and the law of Moses. And he gave an impassioned speech showing that Jesus Christ was the one who came and fulfilled the law of Moses and that Moses had actually prophesied about Jesus. And with that, Stephen was stoned to death. And it says that they placed their garments 
with, with Saul of Tarsus. In other words, he was the one overseeing the execution of Stephen through stoning. But a funny thing happened. With every problem, there came a solution overseen and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. And while that was a problem that the church was now facing martyrdom and it says that Saul was going into many homes, dragging out Christians and was responsible for their death and at least their persecution, that something happened when Stephen was martyred, Saul was touched by the Holy Spirit. And so on his way to Damascus to find more Christians to execute them, he encountered Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? That is, the thing that a farmer would use to drive his oxen down a road. Jesus says to Saul, this is how you're treating me. And Saul, having encountered Jesus Christ, turned to him and became a Christian. Saul soon changed his name to a Roman name, Paul, and he and Barnabas, we read in Acts chapter 13, were sent out by the church at Antioch to go and plant churches around the known Roman world, the, Roman, the Greco-Roman world at that time. So we see from Acts chapter 9 to the close of Acts, uh, which is Acts chapter 28, the church was spreading across the, the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, and what went from being small house churches in and around Jerusalem went to becoming what's, what the New Testament refers to as householder churches. These were rather large, physically large venues where a householder may have up to 20 or so servants also living in that house, as well as extended family, uh, aunts and uncles and especially unmarried aunts and grandparents and obviously children and so on. So there would have been quite a few people in these households. And when Paul arrived in a Gentile town, such as the ones that we might see in uh, Acts chapters 13 and 14, uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium and so on, these towns, he would first go to the synagogue and preach to Jews in the synagogue and in Acts chapter 14, uh, we see that Paul had gone to uh, uh, Iconium and had preached there and there were many Jews and Greeks. And so there were, there were Greeks who, which is a catch-all word for Gentiles, that is non-Jews, who believed Paul and they accepted that what he was telling them was the truth, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was the Saviour. He had been crucified and that three days later, he was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit was now here to give them regenerated life. That is, they could be born again. Their dead spirit, spiritually speaking, could be made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit now. And so we see with Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the Apostle, Gentile churches were planted around the Greco-Roman world and the church expanded greatly. This was always Christ's intention, that his church would be a global church. We read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, go into all the world. 
and make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I have commanded. (laughs) And so that is exactly what Paul did. He took that very seriously, and he and Barnabas initially, and then Paul with After uh, he broke off with uh, Barnabas, it was he and Titus and Silas who would go around the empire preaching the gospel in a synagogue first and then in Roman households where people had turned to Christ. And with the Roman householders already being the leader of their household, they were a ready-made leadership structure and the church grew and expanded rather quickly. We see Dr. Luke writing in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where he, he describes Jesus telling them from verse 6, go into all the world, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost, the outermost parts of the world. And that's the outline of the book of Acts, by the way, where we see the church expanding to people who were not Jews, but also where Jews lived as well. So this expansion, we, we read Paul writing to the Ephesians, which is in modern-day Turkey, where in verses 19 and 20, uh, Paul tells them, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, he tells these Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So now he's incorporating this Roman household language into their understanding of what the church was always meant to be, that God is actually the chief householder. He's the one who feeds people, protects people, shelters people. He's the one who heads up a family, including uh, aunts and uncles and grandparents and servants and so on. They all come under his protection. He's the ultimate householder. And so he tells these Gentiles, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You are now fellow citizens with the saints, that is, the Jews, and members of the household of God, built, it says in verse 20, on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And there's that reference to the overseeing, governing work of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit governs and oversees each local church and the global church because only he has both the strength and the wisdom and the knowledge and the power to do that. No man has that power. That's the Holy Spirit's work. So we see Paul telling us that the church was was spreading, it was growing As he says, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Church is not a place to be trivial with God. It's a holy temple, Paul says. It's a place where God's spirit dwells. And as such, it it comes with a certain gravitas. As we'll see in a moment, the early church, when they met, they did certain things. They sang. In fact, they sang their worship. They read God's word, they preached God's word, they taught God's word. God's word was central to what they were doing, but they also partook of what the Apostle Paul would call the Lord's Supper. In his epistles to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells the believers there that they have been admitted to the Lord's table. Now, this is an expression of status. You see, 
we, we don't celebrate the Lord's table when we take of the elements of communion. We celebrate of the Lord's supper because we have been admitted to his table. The early Christians saw the taking of the bread and the wine where Jesus had said, this is my body and of the wine, this is my blood. He didn't say, this represents my body or this represents my blood. He used language that we can only surmise is mysterious and we surmise that because of just how many great thinkers have not been able to get their head around what he meant. So in what Christ said about what believers should do when they gather, take the bread, take the wine. This is my body. This is my blood. Take it and eat all of you. Take the cup and drink all of you and do it together. So when we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, often called by other churches as Holy Communion or the, the, well, uh, the Eucharist, we are taking of something that we can touch, we can taste. It not just is something we touch and taste, but it comes into us. Christianity is a very tangible experience with Christ. And the Lord's table is in, integral to that. And perhaps there are some of us who need to appreciate that what Christ was doing when he called the church to come together to sing, to sing hymns, to sing the word of God. In fact, the scripture says that Christ sang a hymn with his disciples before he went out to, get to Gethsemane. And when he's called his church to come together to pray, where Paul says, I, I, I want all men everywhere to lift up holy hands and to pray for those in authority that they might come to know the Lord the mediator between God and man. And when the church comes together, they were to give heed to the word of God, not just hear it, but heed it. The word of God was to be read, the word of God was to be preached, and the word of God was to be taught, not just so people could be entertained or have their ears tickled, not just so they could hear fine oratory, but so that their lives could be transformed and conformed into the likeness and image of Christ. Into the second century, the church continued to expand right the way through to the 11th century, but there was something that happened very early in the 4th century of the church's history. When the emperor, Constantine, had a dream in which he heard in his dream, hoc signo vinces, which is to say, in the sign of the cross you shall overcome. In, the, in this sign... This symbol you shall overcome. And he saw in his dream a vision of the cross. And so he put it on his shields as his emblem. And miraculously, so history might tell us, Constantine won two significant battles that led to him being the unopposed emperor of the Roman world. And with that, he decriminalized, he legitimized Christianity and invoked a law that all people in his empire should now become Christians. That was a dramatic turning point and it led to the church establishing a, a core of beliefs that became known as the Nicene Creed. Down through the centuries, churches have often established what's called a statement of faith. But the two established uh, 
statements of faith that the ancient church had over time by, by at least the 5th century were the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And both of those are held by most churches even today as the backbone of their statement of faith. It was as the church continued to grow and expand into the 6th and 7th and 8th century that many of its leaders, it became apparent, did not know Christ. And this led to what's known as the Dark Ages or the Medieval Period. And then God began to shine a light, a light where John Wycliffe, a monk, realised that if the people could just read in their own language what the Scriptures meant, (laughs) they would see that Christ is the one who is the Saviour and the Lord and that they can come to him by faith. John Wycliffe is known as the morning star of the Reformation. Then, of course, by about the 16th century, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, who was lecturing through Paul's epistles, began to realise that much of what Paul said in those epistles was not what the Roman Catholic Church of that day was actually teaching and that led to him appealing to what became known as the reformation of the church with the reformation of the church different branches of those who were protesting about the unbiblical teaching of the church arose and that's where the word protestantism comes from it's where different denominations come from and with the growth of the church these denominations would be a strategic and pivotal means by which Christ, through the overseeing and empowering of the Holy Spirit, would cause his church to grow even more, spread faster and go global in a way that it hadn't done previously in what Stuart Piggin, Professor Stuart Piggin calls holy emulation. That is, as one denomination began to just take initiative and reach out with the gospel, other denominations also tried to keep up holy emulation he calls it but all through this period the reformers emphasized what the bible teaches about church that is it is to be a place where people meet physically meet in person together to partake of the lord's supper to partake of the elements the communion to give heed to the word of god to sit under biblical preaching the preaching of the bible and to hear the word of God taught in a way that they could apply it. Colossians 3.16 states this. Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-3. to And that they were to come under the discipline of the word of God. That is, they were to become disciples shaped by the word and the spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 talks about being sanctified. And they were to experience family. The most common expression Paul uses of believers is brothers. And the New English translation says adelphois can reasonably be translated brothers and sisters. So today, the story that God is writing is of a church that will become glorious as it glorifies Jesus. A church that will become magnificent as it promotes the magnificence of Christ. And I hope that we will be such a church. And I pray that every church in our city, every local church in our city, will be such a church as well. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who have never seen the light and seen that they need a saviour. I pray right now, 
as people listen to the sound of my voice, they would give heed to the voice of your spirit calling them to come home and to come into that light of truth that Jesus Christ is their saviour, their rescuer, the one who can set them free from sin and adopt them into the household of faith with Father God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help every local church in this city to be the kind of church that does what your word tells us to do when we meet. We are to gather. We are to assemble. We are to give heed to worshipping you together. We are to partake of the Lord's Supper together, to hold the bread as if it was the body of Christ, to drink the wine as if it was the blood of Christ, to come together, to pray together, and Lord, that we might be the kind of people that are shaped into the disciples you want us to be by the word and by the spirit. And that, Father, as you do this in us, we are taking our place in the script that you had from the foundation of the world for your church to be the kind of people you want us to be. So, Father, I pray, help us to be that kind of church, a church that cares a church where Christ is the head and we are his hands, his feet, his body, reaching out with the love of Christ to a hurting, dried up, desperate people who need to know the truth. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Story God is Still Writing from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, the church's story is not yet complete. There is still a major role for those within the church to contribute to the community around us in obedience to God. God and his plan for the world. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining with you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. Music